Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's finally 2021, but that line in the calendar doesn't mean that the pandemic is anywhere near over. So I want to start off this year by looking back at people I interviewed in the series we launched before Audacious. It was a collection of nine weekly episodes called Us in the Time of Coronavirus, a living history. Today, you'll reconnect with an anxiety expert. I think there's much to be said for the fact that in the midst of crisis, we can find opportunities for growth. And you'll hear how one man is doing eight months after being released from the hospital after two weeks on a ventilator. Plus, hear reflections on grief from a woman who lost her dad to the coronavirus in the pandemic's early days. I talk to him a lot when I'm sad. You know, I don't know if he hears me, but I, I like the idea that he can. And hear how one arts organization is remembering a prominent arts advocate who died from COVID-19 in June. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Just as we were putting the finishing touches on the first few shows of Audacious back in March, the pandemic hit our area. So instead of launching this show, we launched a nine-episode series called Us in the Time of Coronavirus, A Living History. Through that show, you heard about how people grappled with their religious faith during the pandemic, how people tried to date, and how marriages fared. You heard about the increasing amounts of people investing in backyard chickeneering. You heard about anxiety at the beginning of the pandemic and what it was like being a gun store owner whose inventory of guns and ammunition was mostly sold out in a matter of days. You heard from kids about what they were experiencing in lockdown. And the final episode was nothing but remembrances of people who died because of COVID-19. This hour, reconnect with three people from us in the time of coronavirus. Later in the show, you'll hear from psychologist Dr. David Tolan from the Institute of Living in Hartford. He'll talk about what patterns he's seeing as people have been adapting to the disease, the shutdown, masks, and the vaccine. And you'll hear about a woman whom we lost to COVID-19 and the half-million-dollar arts initiative that bears her name. But first, one of the people we met last spring was Anthony Spina of West Haven, Connecticut. He was part of an episode about how hospitals were using uplifting, inspiring music and discharging COVID patients from hospitals. When Anthony was discharged from Gaylord Hospital in April, after two weeks on a breathing machine, they played Don't Stop Believin' by Journey as he embraced his family in the hospital lobby. Back at home, he was weak, could barely walk, and he wondered if he'd ever get the strength back that he lost. I asked him, how's he feeling now? I'm at a level now that I haven't probably been in like probably 20 years, right? Whoa. In what way? I'm so strong, much stronger health-wise. My, my health is great. I work out four to five times a week. I'm able now to do a full between 25 to 35-minute workout on my elliptical machine downstairs in my basement. And before you got sick, you weren't doing any of that. No, 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 no. No, I wasn't. I was kind of stuck in this pattern. Then I got sick. And um, it took all my muscle mass, so I couldn't get out of bed um, when I got home that first day, right? And, and and I don't tell nobody this stuff either, so I'm telling you this. You know, this is like exclusive stuff that I'm going to tell you right now. When I got discharged out of Gaylord, 
on the 6th of, of May. I got home and I didn't have enough strength to even get up off my couch. I live on a dead end road. So in, in the beginning when I got home, I could only walk it one, one and a half times. Then I started doing five or 10 times. And now I could probably run a few miles. Huh. And it's crazy because, you know, you, you look at things and we all get into these patterns of life, right? And you kind of lose sight of a lot of things. And before this virus really hit me, I lost sight of a lot of things, you know, in my personal life. And it kind of does something to you. I can't really explain to you. The things you take for granted every single day, like putting your shoes on, your socks on, going to the bathroom by yourself. When you can't physically do that no more, it takes you to a mental mind state. Like, you know, I didn't know if I could ever walk again because of the condition that I was in when I woke up, right? Right. And it's so powerful to hear you talk about this because I'm going to play a clip of something you told me when we talked like a thousand years ago back in early May. You know, I really truly feel that I'm going to take my health much more serious. It's a bad thing, but it's a very humbling thing. Anthony, that is so awesome that you did what you said you were going to do and you've been able to take the time and build your strength back up. But I also wonder, are there any long-term effects of having COVID-19 that you're still experiencing seven months later? The, the side effects that I have is just flashbacks. The holidays get me still, right? Because because I did almost check out. And on my birthday was was this past Wednesday. But, you know, that bothered me a little bit. Thanksgiving bothered me a little bit. But it was it was more of just like I'm grateful, right? I'm grateful to be here. In the months since all this went down with you, the world has responded in so many different ways. People have turned into pro-mask, anti-mask. What would you say to someone who doesn't want to wear a mask or think mask wearing is ridiculous? Wear your mask. Wear it. And kind of stay out of the way. If anybody is feeling symptoms, go get a test. Talk to your doctor. And I just say, stay safe. You know? Wear your mask. Anthony Spina, thank you so much for talking to me. And I'm so relieved to hear you're doing better. Thank you. Happy holidays to you and yours, okay? Thank you. I appreciate it, hon. Next, I want to reintroduce you to Laura Gansey. She's a Farmington, Connecticut native who now works in the restaurant industry in Providence, Rhode Island. Her dad, Michael Gansey of Newington, died in the early days of the pandemic on March 21st. Michael was, among so many things, a proud Sicilian guy from Brooklyn and a respected teacher, carpenter, and sensei at the new Hartford Karate Club. Because of, well, everything, his family couldn't be with him when he died in the hospital. They had to say goodbye to him via a cell phone on speaker in a plastic bag held up to his ear by a doctor. I asked Laura what she's learned about grief in the nine months since her dad died. What I'm learning and what I have learned is that grief is not linear. And so, you know, it's not like a breakup or like um, another kind of experience of loss where the person's still sort of like accessible in some way. It's more like you really cannot predict what will cause you to feel utter despair. A lot of my anxiety can be helped with like feeling like I have control over something which is a lot of people. And um, I've had to really find a new way out 
because I recognize that I don't have, I have really no control over anything, not even my own thoughts really. So what I recognized very recently is that I'm in a an environment at work where I am basically like constantly triggered by, I'm not tasked with like policing people on safety, but I am a man, I am in a leadership role there. And so it is my job to make sure that people are behaving in a way that makes the staff safe. And um, I have been in a few situations where I've had to actually correct people's behavior. How have they reacted? One of the one of the people I corrected, I actually felt like physically unsafe in front of because he just didn't want me to be telling him what to do. Was it a mask thing? Yes. And I try not to mention my personal stuff because it really turns a conversation into a, a whole thing. And it's it's easiest for me to kind of separate, right? Like I kind of show up to work and I kind of put on my service mask and I just try to be professional and not let my personal life seep in too much. But this particular time, this guy said something along the lines of, I'd been speaking with him for a little while, just like, you know, tableside chatting and they had masks on. I had a mask on, but he said, you know, I'm not really a mask person. I, I wear the mask for you. And I'm thinking like, yeah, you know, no, no. but I, the fact that he said, I'm not really a mask person in the way that he said it kind of like, it was that was enough. That was like the threshold that I could, I just couldn't take anymore. And so I tried to explain to him that, you know, everyone, you never know, and that everyone has had a different experience within this. And that, you know, and I meant, I mentioned my dad. And the, the first thing he asked me after saying, like, I'm so sorry, was he had pre existing conditions, right? And it's like, yes, my father did, my dad was sick, but, you know, it's like, how does that, how does that become the first thing that you go to? And how are you not able to just be a a human being? (laughs) You shouldn't need to know somebody's story in order to feel compassion and do the right thing. And I wonder to what degree that is one of the components in your head when you're seeing people without masks on or just wearing masks over their mouth and not their nose and, and feeling this compulsion to say, but my dad, I lost my dad to this. Like, can you talk about what place that knowledge and understanding has and how you navigate your way through this era? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the ways that it's affected me is that um, I'm not confrontational and I'm an empath. So if I see somebody doing something that they're that I think is probably not in their best interest or not in my best interest, my natural instinct is first to try to rationalize their behavior. And second, to separate myself from it. So I'm sort of like isolating a little bit. And and I respect that like not everyone feels like this is as big of a deal, you know. But then right before we started our conversation, I, I was was like on flipping through Facebook. And one of my cousins just, just said that, um, uh, you know, yesterday more people died than people that died in 9-11, you know, and it's in one day, in one day. And, and now I'm, I start feeling angry when things just seem completely out of control, which they totally do. And, um, when I'm, when I'm like watching the news and I see an ICU and I see ventilators and I see those shots, I don't know that if they knew how triggering that was for people that lost someone, they would never show that stuff because it's like, 
we have to fill in the blanks. We didn't see what was happening. And so I, I recognize that's like their attempt at making it serious for people who don't feel affected by it. But there's this other, there's this other side of it that makes it terrifying. And um, it's, it makes me backslide a little bit. And I'm not going to argue with somebody who just won't, who just doesn't feel the same way that I do. You know, it's like, let them learn their own way. It's just unfortunate that some people have to learn the hard way, you know? Yeah. When this all got started and death seemed all around us in a way that's different from now, even though we're at the highest death rate of this whole thing, I remember wondering how people grieve. You know, before all this, when someone you love dies, you have a wake or a memorial service, a funeral, sit shiva, whatever your customs are to deal, but it involves being around other people who you love and who who care about you. And that was taken from you too. And so I wonder, how have you found ways to continue that grieving process? There's, for me, it's more... Um like his workshop is kind of like his mausoleum for me. And so I was able to go home and every time I walk in there, I just get flooded by, I can almost feel his presence. And I think partially, you know, because I didn't get to go through the the, the ritual of kind of uh, celebrating someone's passing over in my mind, he's sort of just in the next room. And, um, that gets really hard when I want to ask him a question or when I want to call him up or, you know, anything like that. So in, in some ways, I think it's actually prohibited me from fully recognizing that he's not around, but I'm, I'm kind of okay with that for now. I was notified by a, a friend acquaintance that one of his students became a monk and they have a ritual. I actually wrote this down because I wanted to mention it. They have a ritual where they honor people that have passed and they write their names on a lantern and then they burn the lantern. And I guess this monk who was his student um, said some very nice things about him in in her dharma. And um, this person who was present, who I had no idea studied Buddhism or um, was, you know, part of this temple, contacted my sister and I to let us know. Some, it's very difficult for me to not feel robbed when I see that other people are gathering and memorializing him um, because we still haven't really found a way of doing that. So that's definitely something that's that I'm struggling with. And I think that it's bringing me to kind of a new understanding of, of death and the importance of, of being able to celebrate it. Because we, a lot of us have a lot of fear related to death, obviously it's like the big unknown. Right. But, um, somebody recently said to me, well, we don't remember our birth, right? Why would we remember our death? And, and what are we afraid of? I was just thinking about like how pissed babies are when they're born and (laughs) like, you know, how they're just like outraged. They're like, how dare you take me out of this comfort? And so it was like the conversation that we were having was like, well, maybe death is the same. And maybe, you know, all this fear that we have going towards it, maybe there's this moment of transition where we just accept and we're at peace. And then we just go into to whatever, you know, whatever your belief is. And I love that. That gave me so much comfort. And 
So it's a lot of, a lot of the way that I'm grieving is sort of talking it out and just being honest about where I'm at with it. And I have a really amazing support system and, you know, I'm, I'm learning that people really will show up for one another. You just have to be honest that you need, you need a chat, you know, you need to talk something out. And I have a lot of really smart and funny and wonderful people in my life that help me, help me through. Do you ever talk to him? All the time. Yeah. I do believe that the energy of the people that we've lost, it comes in and out, you know? And um, I talk to him a lot. I talk to him a lot when I'm sad. And I, you know, I don't know if he hears me, but I, I like that the idea that he can. Like, I like the idea that I've always been freaked out about the... the, the Though I believe that that energy can come in and out, it's like I I hope that it's not there sometimes, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you'd hope there'd be some discretion. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like, Dad, you know, like respect my space, but, <laughs> but now I want you here so I can talk to you. Um, yeah, I I talk to him a lot, and I know everyone in my family does. And we we actually, my brother was cleaning out his workshop, and he found <laughs> he found an envelope. And we've all been in his workshop and we've all kind of tidied up and taken like some, like a tool or two and like just sit in there, you know? And I guess my brother was looking for a screwdriver, like doing something. And he found this envelope and it said in my dad's handwriting on the outside, it said snake eggs. He opened the envelope and my dad had made some weird contraption with like a rubber band and he like coiled it around something so that when you open the envelope, it rattles. <laughs> and my brother lost it, you know, like he, I think he lost it like laughing and then crying because that was a thing with my brother and my dad where they would play practical jokes on one another. And he was like, oh, he got me, you know, he got me. And it's just like these little tiny things like that. Um, Christmas is like also just a really, it's been really, really hard, the holidays in general. And people have told, warned me like, you know, your firsts are always really hard when you lose someone. And um, I completely understand now why people hate the holidays. Like I can completely understand that. And my dad had a really, you know, unique sense of humor. And because he, he had gotten sick a few times, like right around Christmas in the past 10 years, and he started making angels for the tree with his like a with a photocopied picture of his face on them and I think one of them has like a little has a little conversation blurb that says not yet or something like that and he also whittled and he carved probably like a few hundred Santas and painted them and uh it was sort of a thing he also made like wooden reindeers and things like that so my mom has completely saturated the house with things that he made around Christmas time. And that's really hard, but it's also really lovely because I almost forgot how much my dad loved Christmas. So there's been, there's been kind of little messages or like, you know, little, little things that I just, it could be that I just really want desperately to believe that, but it's also like, it's a nice reminder that he's present. I've asked pretty much everything I planned on as usual. I, I want to know if there's anything that we missed that you want to make sure you say for this show. 
I just like, I, I see people getting so impatient and so frustrated and, um, and I really do think we're going to get beyond this. And I think that really in our impatience, I think it's so important for us to maintain our compassion for one another and recognize that our behavior doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody around us and that we're all, we're all going through a really hard time and like that that's okay. And that, you know, there's no shame in getting help with the overwhelming feelings of hopelessness that you're left with when you feel like you have no control. It's, it's, I mean, I would be completely lost without the knowing that I can have a conversation with you and that I can talk to my therapist and that I have uh, some friends that I can reach out to. And it's so important for people to know that this is not forever and, and to have compassion for themselves and for everyone else. Laura Gancy, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for having me. When we get back. When everything around you seems chaotic, focus in on that piece of it that you actually can influence. Dr. David Tolan on how we're dealing with pandemic anxiety nine months in. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're revisiting a few people we met during Us in the Time of Coronavirus. It was a nine-episode series that aired back in the spring, right as COVID-19 started rearing its ugly head in the United States. Now we're going to check in with a guest from the first episode of that show, Dr. David Tolan. He's the director of the Anxiety Disorders Center and Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy at the Institute of Living in Hartford. I wanted to know what patterns he's seeing as people have been adapting to the disease, the shutdown, masks, and the vaccine. Certainly there are increases in anxiety and stress. There also seems to be an increase in depression across the population. And this has been borne out in a few quasi-epidemiologic studies uh, in which they have found that as quarantine wears on, people are becoming increasingly depressed. And in fact, the degree to which a person is physically distanced from others seems to correlate positively with the amount of depression that they experience. So now don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm pro-physical distancing, but I'm also aware that there's a downside to it, which is that the person can become isolated. And, and when a person gets isolated, it's really easy for them to get depressed. So what should people do about it? What can people do about it? Yeah, my, my general thought is that people do best when they are finding meaning in life. You know, to, it's, it's not just a question of getting out for the sake of getting out. It is, in fact, doing something that actually gives you a life worth living, something that gives you a life of purpose. And to the extent that you can find opportunities to live a life of purpose, I think you're well guarded against, you know, that, that onset of, of depression. The other piece, too, is you've got to make good use of your support, social support network. Um, you know, I, I realize that a lot of the time we can't visit our extended family and we can't visit our friends, but 
certainly this is the time to get on Zoom or get on the phone and, and talk to those people because that's an important part of, of you know, beating off the blues. In what ways have you been, if at all, surprised by how people have dealt with their anxiety or how anxiety has showed itself? Or have you not been surprised at all? I think what, what has surprised me more than anything has been the degree of resilience that a lot of people are showing. You know, and I think that people tend to be more resilient than we often give them credit for. And, you know, it's important to recognize that, yes, across the population, anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on the rise. Um, stress is on the rise. Drinking and, and substance use are on the rise. But it's also equally important to recognize that most of the population is not experiencing substantial mental health problems. Most of the population is getting by. The people that we need to be most worried about are those of us that I think are, are most vulnerable. You know, and the people that are really vulnerable are those, for example, who have pre-existing vulnerability to mental health conditions but also people from historically marginalized groups, you know, they seem to be at increased risk of developing anxiety and mood related issues related to the pandemic as well. So, but I'm impressed by the degree of resilience that the population is showing as a whole. Mask wearing is to many uh, more controversial than, than they thought it would be, especially as messaging from experts and president Trump have been at times confusing and contradictory Talk about what kind of anxiety you're seeing when it comes to mask wearing. Well, you know, it's really interesting because when you think about kind of health-related anxiety, you can imagine health-related anxiety, you have to imagine sort of a bell-shaped curve. Most of us are sort of in the middle in terms of health-related anxiety, but there are two tails of that bell-shaped curve, which is a smaller proportion of the population, but on one end of the curve are people that are excessively high in health-related anxiety, and those are the people that are hoarding toilet paper. And on the other hand, on the other side of the curve, you have people that are not anxious enough, and those are the people that refuse to wear masks, refuse to adhere to physical distancing guidelines, and so on. We've got this split now in the population where some people, again, most of us are right in the middle, right where we ought to be, but some of us are clearly too anxious, and others of us are not anxious enough about the problem. Tricky. It, very tricky, very tricky, yeah. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't all go in one direction. And, and, I, and I, I think that mixed messaging from above plays a big role in that. I mean, I think that we got conflicting messages and people started to pick and choose who they listened to. And as we all do with confirmation bias, we all have a tendency to listen to the source that most closely agrees to what we already expected, you know? And so we, we create this little echo chamber and we, we get, our, we get our, our views confirmed over and over and over again. And part of the anxiety around masks is the compulsion to lash out or say something when, let's say, you're in the grocery store and the mask is not covering their nose, for example. <laughs> and you want to say something like, excuse me, uh, your mask should go over your nose or something like, 
what is wrong with you? The mask goes over your nose. How do you feel about that compulsion to address that anxiety by saying something to someone in that context? Is that useful or what? I think increasingly we need to have the courage to speak out when we see somebody who's not adhering to appropriate physical distancing or mask wearing guidelines. Now that said, I realize as do you that there's a lot of Karens out there that are going to respond negatively to that. And, but it doesn't mean don't have the conversation. It, it just means be, be prepared for the fact that your message may not be well received. And if they start getting in your face, just walk away because then you're closer to their face. And if they get in your face, you can walk away. Right. It's not worth getting into a fight about. Um, but, it, uh, but I think it is worth saying something about. And I, I will say I've done that myself. Just casually as I pass by somebody, I've said, mask up, buddy, you know, and I keep moving. Smart. That's the key. Say the thing, say it politely, keep moving. Part of me thinks that this era, which is forcing many of us to speak up about our physical boundaries, may in a way, I hope, translate into how we establish our boundaries in the future, right? When this is in our rearview mirror, whenever that is, maybe some of us will have become better at knowing what our boundaries are and saying and speaking the words to establish what those boundaries are. And that's something that you practice. You don't start off good at this. And so maybe this is, in a terrible way, an opportunity to get better at that stuff. The saying goes, and I don't know if this is true or not, that the Chinese word for crisis is the same as the word for opportunity. Somebody, I'm sure, can can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Oh, it's public radio. They will. They will. (laughs) I'm sure. But I think there's much to be said for the fact that in the midst of crisis, we can find opportunities for growth, that not all of this has to be damaging to us, uh, that in fact, many of us can grow and enrich ourselves as people based on what we've been through. Another thing people feel anxious about one way or the other are vaccines. You know, if they'll really work, if they'll work, but they'll have side effects, if not enough people take them, add to that a very powerful array of shall we say, creative conspiracy theories about vaccines and on and on. Will you talk about anxiety over vaccines? What should people keep in mind? There's always, of course, been anti-vaxxers. That predates COVID, and I'm sure that there will be anti-vaxxers after COVID as well. But I will say that the current anxiety around vaccines probably relates to a couple of factors. One is I think that people have lost a certain degree of faith in their leadership so that people now no longer, a lot of people no longer believe what their leaders are suggesting. I also think that there's been in recent years, a backlash against science in general in the population. Um, There's a lot, I mean, we, we always have struggled with scientific illiteracy But I think now we are really seeing an almost anti-science movement in which people have essentially decided that science and scientists are are bad. But yeah, I mean, I I think that we're seeing an increase in in anti-scientific rhetoric and an increase in anti-scientific sentiment that is not going to serve us well from a public health perspective. So I imagine you'd say, listen to the experts. You know, if you're not sure, do your research. But then doesn't that kind of go back into that confirmation bias category? You have to pick your sources carefully, because if you just unleash somebody on the Internet, they're going to find all kinds of stuff. And next thing you know, they're looking at QAnon and stuff like that. So 
you know, I, I think you need to figure out what are reliable sources of information and what aren't reliable sources of information. And, and I realize that there's so much information available to us that it doesn't make that distinction very easy. Um, that it's often hard for the average person to decide what's a credible source and what's not a credible source. Um, but we, we, it's, it's the conversation that we've got to have. And it's one that I have with my anxious patients all the time of let's figure out what's a reasonable place for you to get information like the CDC or the World Health Organization. And what are not good places for you to get your health information like Reddit. <laughs> sweet, sweet Reddit. <laughs> It has its place. Reddit's great for, you know, our look at my dog, our no, 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 yes, you know, for, for entertainment's purposes, but probably not health decisions. It has, it absolutely has its place. But I think the problem is that, it, you know, the internet has become sort of a breeding ground for these weird conspiracy theories and people believe all kinds of strange stuff. And there's nobody really fact checking that stuff right now. Just upvoting or downvoting, which tells you nothing. Exactly. Exactly. Finally, I want to get some kind of big picture advice from you now that we're nine months in, uh, even though vaccines are coming. Of course, this pandemic is a long way away from being ancient history for us. I want to play a clip of something you said to me when we last talked way back at the end of March of 2020. That really stuck with me. It's been very well established that if you want to really freak people out, the best way to do it is take away their semblance of control and take away their ability to predict the future. That's a guaranteed recipe to make people stressed out and anxious. And that's exactly what the universe is doing right now. But it's important for us to pull back from that and recognize that we do have at least a little bit of control. So Dr. David Tolan, what can we control right now? There are some things that you can't control. We cannot directly control the uptick in cases in Connecticut, for example. But at a personal level, we can control whether we wear a mask, we can control whether we adhere to physical distancing uh, recommendations, we can control whether we practice safe hand hygiene. Focusing in on those pieces, even though they might seem small, is a recipe for helping people feel less anxious about what's going on. You know, so the idea is when, when everything around you seems chaotic, Focus in on that piece of it that you actually can influence. Makes me think about something I heard really early on. Keep track of something, be it, you know, planting seeds and taking care of plants or the height of your toddler. Keep track of something, something to look forward to and reflect on later. I love it. it it's a small thing that you can predict, you can track, you can you can't control all of it, but it's something that you can get yourself invested in that isn't necessarily just drowning in the midst of all of this uncertainty that we're that we're facing. How do you know when it's time to talk to a professional? I, I think that lots and lots of people are experiencing anxiety and stress and even feelings of depression. And for the most part, we're going to be resilient enough to manage those things. I think most of us are going to find that this is time limited, that with our existing supports, we can overcome these problems. That being said, if you find that this is really making you truly miserable or that it's really impacting your ability to carry out the things that you need to do during the day, that might be time to actually talk to a professional. So don't hesitate to reach out to somebody 
if it feels like you are experiencing anxiety or depression or substance-related problems that are getting in the way of your life. Have you been noticing if people in the mental health field are doing more telehealth because of the danger of the beast? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in my clinic here at the Institute of Living, we're doing mostly telehealth. In my private practice, I'm doing mostly telehealth as well. But it is important to recognize, too, that the telehealth can work and that talking to a counselor over telehealth, while maybe it's not an exact substitute for in-person meeting, can still go a long way. Well, Dr. David Tolan, director of the Anxiety Disorder Center and Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy at the Institute of Living in Hartford, thank you so much for talking with me. Hey, thank you, Kayon. Thanks for having me. After the break. When it came to moving the agenda along of Black folks and equality and opportunity and not taking BS and calling a racist, when, when it happens, she was there. She was at the forefront. Not a problem. Remembering a woman who did so much for the arts and equality in Hartford and how one organization is giving back in her name after losing her to COVID-19. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. On the ninth and final episode of Us in the Time of Coronavirus, here on Connecticut Public Radio, you heard a collection of remembrances of lives that were cut short by COVID-19. And I want you to meet one more. Hartford native Joyce C. Willis made sure to pack a lot into her lifetime. By the time she died at 72 years old, on June 18th, 2020, she'd been a Howard University graduate, reporter at the Hartford Times, and she retired as vice president of corporate communications after over 25 years of service at the Hartford. She was a board member of the Edward C. and Ann T. Roberts Foundation and the Hartford Symphony, and she was a charter member of the Black Giving Circle Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. She loved traveling, fashion, and getting together with her friends, the Atta Girls. Now, 24 days before Joyce died, George Floyd was murdered. In response to Floyd's death and protests around racial justice, the people at the Roberts Foundation put out a statement of solidarity and support of Black Lives Matter, and they announced a half-million-dollar funding initiative. All that money would be invested in Black artists and artists of color in the form of residencies at Hartford Stage, the Hartford Symphony Orchestra, and the Amistad Center for Arts and Culture. I spoke with Olivia White, a member of the Roberts Foundation board, and she told me about how that big funding initiative became connected with her dear friend, Joyce Willis. She brought me back to when she found out that Joyce was in the hospital and that she wasn't going to make it. And you'll hear her mention Lisa. That's Lisa Curran, the executive director of the Roberts Foundation. I immediately called Lisa because Joyce had served on the Roberts Foundation board and the Amistad Center, and she was an art collector, a supporter, you know, on the board of the symphony. Uh, she loved the theater, you know, all of that. I immediately called Lisa. I said, you know, Joyce is sick. She's not going to, and I don't know why it popped in. Let's name our fund, you know, our investment after her, because we'd already been moving towards putting our money where our mouth is, <laughs> you know, in just that short amount of time. So we, we picked the three organizations that Joyce was, in our view, most involved with Hartford Symphony and, and of course, the stage and, and, of course, the Amistad Center. But this is not a one-off investment. 
this is Joyce's legacy and the Roberts Foundation legacy. So what do you think Joyce would say about all this? I think she would be just thrilled. Uh, she would just be thrilled. And her smile, it, it couldn't get any bigger, but it would. I mean, she would be very, very happy. And she'd be really happy that we're doing it through the vehicles of organizations that she loved and supported. So I think she would be beyond thrilled. And I know her family is thrilled and her her very good buddies who knew about this from the beginning are thrilled. And, you know, so this is, is um, you know, maybe a moment of uplift at the end of the worst year ever. <laughs> you know, so, you know it's, it's, it's good, you know, a little light, a little light. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss of your wonderful friend. And I'm so grateful that you're able to tell me more about her and this amazing initiative. Well, thank you. Thank you for thinking about Joyce and the Roberts Foundation. So thank you. I also had the honor of learning more about Joyce from her friend, Carolyn Harris Burney. They were friends for over 45 years. Here she is reading a portion of the eulogy she wrote for Joyce. Joyce was so passionate about her studies in art history and African-American art that during fierce New England winter storms, she would put on her designer boots and trudge through snow and slush to get to class at the University of Hartford. When she got fed up with the lack of representation of African-American female artists in the university's curriculum, she provided the department heads with a fact-based, thoughtful analysis of the problem, complete with a list of corrective action steps. Like her mother, she was a gourmet cook. Food was an adventure and an expression of love. All were welcomed at Joyce's holiday feast. She always served her mother's pearl onions, and she always made an extra pan of stuffing to stock a friend's freezer. Joyce commissioned renowned artist Edgenetta Miller to create a collage from her father's old neckties. Joyce hung it in her hallway, and R.C.'s baby girl always got a smile and perhaps a sweet memory when she glanced at it. Family was important, and Joyce never missed a family reunion. She was a regular at the Hartford Symphony, the Hartford Stage, and always at the Amistad Center. She was an active philanthropist and a generous friend. She nurtured the next generation, mentored them, taught them how to stand up for themselves. And as a backup, she taught them how to curse. She watched April become a fierce and protective mother. Sharon and Francine blossomed as entrepreneurs. She adopted Danielle, not through laws, but through love. In return, they taught her about the newest hairstyles, cell phones, TVs, and Facebook pages. She was a best friend for life to Francis, Deirdre, and Lois. And she leaves Carolyn and the Atta girls who will mourn her forever. <laughs> We all heard her say many times, I don't give a rat's ass. But in fact, she really, really did care an awful lot about an awful lot of things and a lot of people. So that's it. Thank you. I had talked to Olivia about the half million dollar initiative that's being done to honor Joyce that has her name on it. How... How do you think she would have responded to that gesture? 
she would be astonished and amazed and I would have to talk her into going to all of these receptions and things that are going to happen to if we had a regular world and social life to acknowledge all of these things that are happening. You know, um, I don't want to say anything. What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to I don't know what to do kind of a thing. She would, she would love to have a drink and be in the back of the room and watch all of it happen around her. Wherein other people who've accomplished less would be right up front, you know, and boastful and proud and all of that. And uh, she'd be happy to be in it and then sneak out and go to one of those crazy restaurants. <laughs> You'd mentioned the Atta Girls. Yes. Will you tell me about the Atta Girls and who she was in that group? The Atta Girls is a group that started decades ago when at the time, young black professional women were working at the Hartford Insurance Group and they needed a support system. They needed someone to say, someone that they could go and talk about the discrimination that they had faced on whatever micro or macro level and someone who understood that and would not judge or lecture, just understood so that you could get out all of your feelings. And sometimes that was all you need. That was all that you could do. You wanted to do more, but that was all you could do. So I'm going to say there was about seven young professional African-American women who came together to provide that support to each other. And at the end of those conversations and vetting and sessions where you just had to just let it all out, the parting phrase was at a girl, you know, you give somebody a pat on the back and say, you can make this, you can do this, we can do this all together at a girl, keep going, kind of a thing. So it became lifelong friends. And I just sort of, I was at Aetna, but I just sort of inserted myself in it because I didn't have that kind of a support group at Aetna. So we're still patting each other on the back and say, at a girl, we'll get through all of this. And it's interesting to know that travelers approached one of the original Atta Girls and said, you know, we're interested in putting together a group, a support group like the Atta Girls at Travelers. And so they were talking to them about that. So it might have some legs. It's been about six months since Joyce died. What do you miss most about her? The holiday is very difficult to think about. Uh, we always got together and we had 10 or 11 people for dinner. She and I would hostess and uh, plan our menus and I'd set the table, which was my joy. The holiday this year is different because of the virus. We won't have 10 or 11 people minus Joyce, which would be unbearable. I can't bear to think about that. Um, so the virus is giving me cover, if you will, to, uh, have this first holiday without her and or anybody. What else do you want to make sure that people remember about Joyce? She was a radical. She was at Howard University during the 1960s. So she was in the Black Power Movement kind of a thing. And I was at another university, another predominantly Black university, and we always looked at the students of Howard as to say, that's how you get it done. She achieved what she did because she was a radical. She wouldn't, she wouldn't put up with crap. And she did curse. She, she cursed a lot. Sometimes I would have to tell her, Joyce, uh, you don't have to put that in there. But I, I say that to say how passionate she was about equality and 
BS. And isn't it something that fighting for equality is considered and is still considered radical? Oh, it is. It's And when you're doing it, you have to be willing to say, yeah, and that's good. You know, that's a good thing. You don't want to be a black person in this country and not be defined as a radical. <laughs> that is not a good thing. Okay. You have lost something of your identity there. So yeah, Joyce might want to be in the back of the room with a drink during these receptions and things. But when it came to moving the agenda along of Black folks and equality and opportunity and not taking BS and calling a racist, when, when it happens, she was there. She was at the forefront, not a problem. She took care of that. You didn't have to worry about that. She would take care of that. That I want you to know that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, Carolyn Harris, Bernie, thank you so much for telling me about your friend Joyce, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you're doing. I think that's wonderful. I look at the number every day, 298,000 people, 64 or whatever it is yesterday. And I think of uh, my pain multiplied by all of that. And and it didn't have to be this way. It's just... um, an amazing thing to have to go through, but people like you giving me an opportunity to share um, helps, it helps, thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Joyce's initiative, visit therobertsfoundation.org and to listen back to all the powerful stories in each of the nine episodes of Us in the Time of Coronavirus, visit ctpublic.org slash us. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like stuttering and other speech disfluencies, sobriety during a pandemic, what it's like to fly into a hurricane, the history and current state of racism in our technology, and what we can learn from children who have a rare disease and the parents who love them, visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. And wear a mask. Mm-hmm.